0: Welcome back to your now weekly talk, Evidence, which we're recording on a beautiful sunny afternoon on Wednesday the 15th of April. As always, uh, in this new world of coronavirus, we're focusing on that. Last week, we talked about hydroxychloroquine as a potential therapeutic, prognostic models and face masks. Today we're going to talk about remdesivir, another potential therapeutic, um, smoking, care homes and what the latest data on mortality is in the UK. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor here at the BMJ and as always I'm joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen MacDonald and Carl Hannigan. Helen can I get you to introduce yourself?
1: Yes, I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ. And Carl. Hi,
2: I'm Carl Hennigan. I am Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ-EBM.
0: So as it has been such glorious, sunny weather here, it got me thinking, Carl, is there any evidence yet that uh, warmer weather is having the effect that we hope that it might reduce um, coronavirus' spread?
3: Well, there's
2: lots of evidence about seasonal viruses, particularly the ones that have a lipid envelope, uh, ones like RSV and normal coronaviruses, that three things really have an impact. As the temperature goes up, the humidity goes up, and it seems the humidity has a significant impact on the stabilisation of the lipid envelope, which is highly fragile and can break down quite easily if you wash your hands. And the other factor is UV light seems to be important. So being outside is actually a good thing in that UV light and a higher temperature should, if it operates like all the other respiratory viruses, See, actually destabilise the virus, if you like, make it more fragile, and we should see a seasonal dip occur. There are just some sort of slight concerns because with MERS and SARS in the past, that didn't quite happen in the same way. Nobody's quite sure about that. But actually, as we seem to warm up and go above 14 degrees C, which it is today, we should see an impact on uh, viral, the virus and its ability to transmit.
0: So, fingers crossed there. And I suppose we might see that in uh, a few weeks' time when the numbers uh, come in then. And that takes us on to what we're talking about later on, about uh, uh, the latest figures on death. Um, But before that, uh, it's time to look at what to start and what to stop. So last week we looked at um, hydroxychloroquine as a potential antiviral agent. Now one of the other ones that has been tested, and there was a new paper of slightly dubious quality in the NEJM, um, looking at remdesivir. And Helen, you've been you've been reading about this.
1: Yes, indeed. In, in my chat with uh, Robin Ferner last week about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, he mentioned having greater hope for this drug remdesivir. So I was quite interested when I saw this research paper um, on remdesivir in New England Journal of Medicine a few days ago. Um, it described compassionate use of remdesivir for patients with severe COVID-19. But to be quite frank, it didn't really bring me any clarity. It was a descriptive paper of 61 or so people in a whole variety of settings in many countries around the world that didn't have any kind of comparison group. So it sort of left me back at square one. So instead, I called uh, Robin's um, colleague, Jeff Aronson, at the University of Oxford, who together with Robin Ferner has been taking a broader look at the evidence around this drug. So I think we should hear from them.
3: Hi, yes, I'm Jeff Aronson. I'm a physician working in Oxford, and my specialty is clinical pharmacology, which means I'm interested in, well, anything to do with medicines, really. If they move, I shoot them. I think to understand why a drug like this might be beneficial, you need to know something about how the virus works. And there are two major aspects of that. One is how the virus gets into your cells in the first place. And the second is once they're in your cells, how does it reproduce and overwhelm your body? So for me, those are the two major points that would offer targets for drug therapy. And the drug you want me to talk about today called Remdesivir attacks the second of those. It potentially stops the virus reproducing in the cells.
1: So the theory is very interesting, but what do we know about the reality in humans who are actually infected with the coronavirus or might become infected? We only have
3: one report now of its use in humans and it's a study that's been published which was just a look to give it to 60 or so patients to see if they got better in any way and one can't really interpret the data from such a study. So what we are waiting for now is the results of proper trials of this medicine in humans.
1: From its use in other conditions, do we know anything about the harms that this drug might cause in humans?
3: Harms are often neglected in clinical trials because people are so interested in benefits. But it is important to collect harms. What we know is from the use of this drug remdesivir, in a previous viral infection uh, with Ebola virus. And in that case, the incidence of adverse events, that's just bad things happening, which may or may not be due to the drug, of course, was about 60%. 60% of the patients in a relatively small trial had one or more adverse events and those adverse events were serious in 23 percent. Most commonly they involved abnormal liver function, diarrhea, rashes, renal impairment, and low blood pressure. So it's not clear that this drug is necessarily harmless. One has to look out very carefully for adverse reactions. The importance of doing a proper double-blind randomized study in such a case asserts itself because if you don't do the double-blind randomized study, then you won't know which adverse events were actually due to the drug and were actually adverse reactions. So it's important not only to look for benefits, but to look for harms and to use proper controls, double-blind, to show you the extent to which the adverse events you're seeing can actually be attributed to the medicine. We don't know anything about that just yet. All of this stresses the importance of doing proper, double-blind, randomized controlled trials.
1: After my conversation with Jeff, what I took away was there's perhaps a need for less speed or more careful thought around these trials. And it was surprising again to pick up on some of the themes that Robin had mentioned the previous week, that there are a lot of small trials registered which might give us quite shaky or low quality um, evidence. And and it really got me thinking around um, how much we know about wasted research in a pandemic. And it would be interesting for us to pick up on that theme, I think, and discuss that more next week.
0: Yeah, definitely. And especially interesting, given that um, hydroxychloroquine is a fairly old drug. It's been around for a long time. So you would expect, you know, there's a generic version of it, but but this one is a it's a pretty new drug. It was developed for Ebola, so uh, you just thought it would be in there and, and organising this better themselves.
2: It's not often I am sort of short of words, but I am feeling incredibly disheartened and disillusioned by what's going on. It's sort of amplifying all the problems that we've observed for the last 20, 30 years are coming right into a funnel to show... of the data going, patients going into trials are wasted. The trials are done badly. They're not asking the right questions in the right way. There's no standardization. And we're sat here wasting an opportunity to understand what's going on. I think it's incredibly important we, we really grasp this message. I saw a report that came out of a few case series claiming remdesivir worked. And this was in five patients, of which three of them had remdesivir. But interestingly, of the two severe cases, they'd already gone beyond their viral load, so it already waned. And that's one of the crucial problems here. Most of the disease, the COVID disease, is coming beyond the virus for some patients. And today I read a report which is saying, the manufacturer is saying, it's more likely to work in milder cases early on in the disease and not later on. But that's when you need the treatments to work. And if we can't grasp this idea of equipoise, we can't grasp the idea that we really do need to do clinical trials globally in a highly robust way. We are going to walk out of this just going, we didn't learn very much in terms of effective treatments.
1: I think the other interesting point was around whether the evidence that we are going to collect now, and assuming we do generate some high quality evidence, whether that realistically is going to be available to help us now in this pandemic, or whether that evidence is going to uh, be better placed to inform future outbreaks of the condition. Because I do think there's a kind of expectation amongst the public that some of these drugs being tested now are going to be very rapidly used in practice and will give us something we can do today.
2: Yeah, I think that's where the repurposing of established treatments that are already available is potentially more of importance for this outbreak versus new treatments for the next one. Because it's the chloroquinines are they're available and can be rolled out if they're showed to be beneficial. But the newer drugs, there's a problem with in the manufacturing. And I'm hearing that's going to take six months if you want to get significant number of doses out there. Well, that's the second peak or the next into uh, outbreak. So I think new drugs will not be available in the wide scale that's required now.
0: Mm. And uh, in one of our other podcasts we talked to Siri Moon about you know the sort of international response to this and it seems that there's no mechanism by which internationally we can we can really uh, respond to to a drug shortage like that. The WHO doesn't have the power to to forced companies to make these things. There is no way of kind of equitably distributing these drugs amongst all the different countries um, where it would be available. So there is a lot to learn, I think, throughout the, the chain.
2: You're picking up on a very important point, Duncan, this idea that in this position you'd need to have legislation that would allow other manufacturers to make and distribute the drug. So you'd have to take almost a sort of governmental position where you'd say the manufacturer is going to be a public entity, they would not like that in any sense whatsoever. But that's what would be required if it was going to be significantly effective.
0: Hmm. Well, we'll see if that happens. Thank you uh, for that update, Helen. Carl, you picked up on the point there that um, you know these are things that we've known for a long time, and. That was something else that you've brought to the table about smoking. We've known about the harms of this for for a long time, and yet uh, it comes around again in COVID.
2: Yeah, I, you know, one of my all-time favourite papers is the Richard Dole Smoking British Doctors Study in the 1950s with over 50 years of follow-up. Whenever you give up, uh, you'll get huge benefits And there's clear evidence that if you smoke, you increase your risk of complications with respiratory infections. You lead to conditions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, which is on the act risk register. So in a time like this, this is a perfect time to roll out some public health messages and encourage people to quit. Now, If you really wanted to do something in the next 12 weeks and improve public health, you could either keep everybody locked down and ruin the economy, or you could say, actually, we're going to have a ban on cigarettes right now for the next 12 weeks and get everybody off them. That might be a bit controversial, but I think you've got to think radically in these times about what are we trying to achieve when we talk about healthcare. Stopping smoking is the number one health benefit in the world, for, to prevent particularly non-communicable diseases, but also the complication of communicable diseases.
0: Yeah, and uh, I suppose it would take a while to see if, if that's worked. Do we know how much um, that sort of disease and, and death smoking causes when it, you, we compare it to COVID-19.
2: Well, uh, yeah, it's huge in terms of the number of deaths and life years lost. It's far greater than COVID-19. And interestingly, you start to, uh, particularly things like heart attack, immediately when you stop smoking, you start to get benefits within 48 hours really quickly because of its impact on platelets and stickiness. But in a respiratory infection, people who smoke, you remember that what happens is they have problems. Their cilia can't clear their airways. They have this like sinks of gunk that sit there in their lungs. So they're much more likely to get bacterial complications, get pneumonia. And all the evidence shows if you give up smoking, you reduce your risk from respiratory infections. Therefore, the benefits will be significant, not just for the COVID, but for all of the other diseases that smoking affects.
1: Well, I would like to hear someone put that forward as a, as a question for um, these daily briefings with the, with the government. <laughs> could, you, could we swap the lockdown for a total ban on the sale of cigarettes? It'd um, be interesting to know what the public thought of that.
2: <laughs> it is. I also thought, and this is a bit, but I wondered what happened if we end up with this uh, mask. You have to wear masks mask outside all the time. How's that going to work if you're a smoker? You're going to have great difficulty with the mask and smoking. So, masks could have a second effect to, to cut down on people's ability to smoke. And maybe yeah. that's the real purpose of them.
0: <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> well, we mentioned death there, and we're going to come back to, to that in a moment. Um, but before that, uh, Helen, uh, back to you. You have been looking at care homes um, and this was prompted uh, by some worries you had about uh, about treating people in care homes.
1: Yeah, it was really some thinking around um, shielded people. Um, and care homes have been quite a bit in the news this week. And one of the concerns that I hear from primary care around some of the Logistical difficulties providing care for this very vulnerable group of people in residential care or even in their own homes with heavy care packages and people going in. And one thing that has bothered me is the possibility that those people have COVID brought to them by the very people who are doing their best to care for them or provide them with health care. So I was really interested to see this rapid review of the evidence for preventing spread of infectious diseases in care homes. And we caught up with the author of that review, Mona, to hear about their key findings.
4: I'm Mona Koshkui. I'm a pharmacist by background, I did most of my work in clinical standards and governance before I moved into academia full time. So I'm currently a DPhil researcher at um, Nuffield Department of Primary Care at Oxford University and I'm also a pharmacist teaching fellow at Kingston University London. One of the things that, that my colleagues and I, so Lucy, Caitlin and myself, have been working on is looking at how um, pandemic spreads can be contained in care homes and we've roughly tried to. to look Look at that from a human resources angle, um, the types of nursing activities and medications that this involves, um, and also the role that external visitors play in um, pandemics. So in terms of if we're looking at the effectiveness of infection control measures, it's dependent upon a number of factors and a combination of strategies providing the most useful output. Um, So the vast majority of of the research out there is around hand hygiene, which is proving to be very important. Um, but more critically than that, it's the availability of sanitizers and hand washing facilities that there is a good evidence base for in terms of cluster randomized control trials for both reducing um, infection rates and deaths um, in addition to using four or more of the World Health Organization's multimodal strategy generally tends to be the most effective in, um, excuse me, in improving adherence to hand hygiene measures. Um, The other things that we found was things around uh, staff movement appears to be a key source of the outbreaks, Um, although this is based on observational evidence and there's no uh, real randomized control evidence in terms of the impact that staff are having. So this is looking at anybody that is delivering any type of care to residents, and it also includes external visitors, so this isn't just um, the, the residents or the patients Family or, or um, carers or, or members. It's it's actually looking at um, contractors potentially that are delivering things into and out of. So it it combines everybody and it also mm. includes our community nursing team. So it's anybody that isn't resident within that environment that is um, leaving and then re-entering that facility when we're looking at this, there's there's a potential, the staff and their movement and entry and re-entry into different facilities um, actually suggests that from an intuitive point of view in terms of in the context of social distancing, that this is where the primary source of infection is coming from and entering into these care facilities. So when we look at looking at the um, effectiveness of the infection control measures. It's things like hand hygiene that are important. It's things like limiting um, the movement of staff between different facilities and between different patients. So some studies have found that actually um, limiting staff movement between the the various different facilities or in larger care homes, having staff assigned to certain zones can um, potentially control that outbreak. In terms of testing, um, there's some evidence um, primarily from case studies around uh, the SARS outbreak in care homes that this allows early identification and a rapid response so that additional infection control measures um, can be put in place in the care home to, to safeguard and protect the patients and staff. So in terms of it's one of our other key findings around well-being, we still don't know um, how much this affects the residents Quality of life, but what we do know in terms of concerns that that is available out in in literature, is that um, this can can actually cause some distress for some uh, some of the, the patients that or, or residents in these care facilities because they sometimes are shielded in terms of what's happening in terms of the wider. Um, Healthcare arena and, and and the emergency, the healthcare emergency that is ongoing at the moment, and this is particularly an issue uh, in terms of patients that um, might have dementia or other um, mental health uh, related illnesses. In terms of staff wearing personal protective equipment, might lead to anxiety and a fear among these these residents. I've got to stress that it's an under-researched area, um, but the points around loneliness and and depressive feelings um, with physical isolation practices is something that, that warrants further research and thought in terms of the different types of care setting and what might be appropriate in those situations.
2: Look, it's really interesting. I, 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 we've heard a lot about ITU critical care beds, about hospitals in all of this COVID outbreak. And and the way I think of the problem here is the iceberg phenomenon. At the tip of the iceberg is the critical care beds, 5,900 of them. Then you've got the hospital beds. We hear a lot about them, 140,000 hospital beds. But just think about below the margin of the water where all the problem is. There are 400,000 people living in care homes. There are nearly 4 million people who live alone in this country who are over the age of 65. And that's what suddenly people are waking up to. Now, the problem I have in all of this is we have totally forgotten about them. And in nursing home in particular, what we're talking about is just not practical under the current structures. In my urgent care job, I go into nursing homes all the time. It's about half of the work I do. The density of the way some homes are structured means it's impossible to stop the spread. They're too tightly packed in. The resources, the number of people who work there is too small. In fact, what I would have done in this outbreak is not built the Excel Centre and the 19 Gale Hospital. I would have got the army to go to nursing homes and go the other way round, because particularly that's where all of the impact is needed. Most of the deaths, more than half the deaths, are in the over 75-year-olds, and they're the most at risk. But we've totally forgotten about them, and we're just waking up when we've realised the tsunami is happening. If you get one infection in a nursing home you've got a huge problem because suddenly you've got 60, 100 people at high risk because of the density problem. Because if we don't sort it, we won't have learnt the lessons. And that will be hugely disappointing because these people matter. And they matter because one day we'll all be there. We'll all be somebody elderly. And I hope when that happens, we will have thought about how important it is to have a caring society for the most vulnerable.
1: Well, I think it's just ironic that you have this public policy of lockdown where where which everyone is strictly adhering to, and it's an incredibly prohibitive and has all kinds of damaging consequences for the economy. But the irony would be that if in doing that policy you haven't actually shielded and protected the very people, that that policy was in many ways designed to to protect those most vulnerable. Who, who are a large sec- section of the population.
2: This is the point which I think has to be now hit home, is why have we decided to forget about this population for so long? And why do we put so little resources in there, whether it's the people, whether it's the PPE, whether it's the primary care, and I am conflicted because I am a GP here at this point, but I've watched it de- erode, not just now, it's been happening. This has been coming in for year on year on year. So we, we are paying the consequences of that lack of investment and thought about a very important aspect of health care and social care.
0: Mm. And as we seem to be coming back to all the time in this, is that uh, this pandemic is just exposing the cracks in, in all of the systems we have, in evidence generation, in, in the way we provision care, in the way we uh, deal with patents on medicine. It's all just sort of exposing the cracks
2: so what we're seeing is all of the things that we've been talking about uh, competing interest and conflicts that's distorting some of the research agenda all of the waste that we've done the overdiagnosis, the too much medicine all of that money we've spent in the wrong areas is now coming home to roost adding to that our growing burden of non-communicable diseases we're more obese we're more inactive We're not fit enough to fight some of these viruses, some of us, including myself. I'm starting to think really seriously about how fit you have to be as you get into the at-risk category to be able to go beyond respiratory viruses that come back year on year on year. So all of the things that we've been discussing for the last year and a half on this program are intensified at this current time. And if we don't come out of this thinking about these issues and really think strategically about value-based healthcare, evidence-based healthcare, we'll end up with more of the same, which is the bit that's making me worried about where we're up, where, where we're at, and where we're going to go in the future.
0: So if you're in the UK, this week you will have seen that there is some new data that's come out from the ONS about the death rate here. Helen, you talked to David Spiegelhalter about this.
1: Yes, um, death data has been something which has been fascinating us for a little little while on this issue. And it feels like you can't really read anything online without knowing how many people have died in the last 24 hours. We had some headlines in the UK suggesting a large rise in the death rate last week and as, with as many as one in five being linked to coronavirus. But it's hard to put that in context. How many people do we expect to die each day? Is coronavirus killing people who were already dying? In other words, are people dying from the virus or just sort of with the virus of, of other things? And with so much uncertainty in the models that have been used for public health policy decision making, there have been legitimate concerns about whether we might have either overestimated or underestimated the threat posed by the virus. So who better to talk to, we thought, than statistician David Spiegelhalter from the University of Cambridge, um, who's an expert in risk and evidence communication.
5: Well of course I'm a statistician and ideally I would love perfect statistics. I would like to know how many people are dying Of because of this virus, um, and compare it with how many people you'd expect normally in order to track the uh, the epidemic. You know, every country has has an issue in that there's two different sources essentially. There's the um, uh, quite rapid response of people dying from COVID, um, and then there's the official registration system in which you um, you when when you check up on death certificates. And um, other countries don't have the same system as we have, where the, our death registrations come out really fast. Uh, you know, I think Netherlands has, but other places don't. You know, so they they the ours comes out every week. We see very rapidly. Now, how many people are dying at And then, you know, it came out that these were only in-hospital deaths. And then it came out of people who had been tested. Then it came out that there was quite long delays, up to two weeks, but definitely a few days. Then we start seeing these huge weekend effects. So those daily deaths, you know, where, which we'd like to use to monitor, are we reaching a peak, are we slowing down, are we reaching a plateau, are we dropping, are, are deeply flawed. And uh, we have to wait for the Office for National Statistics to release their um, death registrations, which uh, I must say is a fantastic organization. Every week, really, really quite rapidly, they, they do weekly updates on the number of deaths and causes of death. You know, it's a great operation which normally no one takes the slightest bit of notice of. And then suddenly now, Tuesday mornings at 9.30, everyone's poring over this data because when it came out yesterday, it revealed a massive spike of 6,500 more deaths in one week, registered in one week, up to April the 3rd, so it's still, you know, some time ago, 10 days ago or so, um, and uh, 6,500 over the normal, what you'd expect, around about 10,000 each year, each week at this time of year. Um, so it's a 60% increase, but only just over half of those cases, 6,000 extra, well, maybe about 3,500 were labelled as COVID on the death certificate, which leaves this, on its own, a huge spike of 2,500 extra deaths in one week without COVID on the death certificate.
1: And what do we make of that?
5: Exactly. Now, this is a massive you know, in a sense, mystery. I, uh, when I saw that data and, and graphed it, I, it was staggering. Not the COVID spike, which I'd expected, but the non-COVID, you know, labeled death. Now, this follows a pattern that's been seen in Italy and other places. They report that the um, number of, of deaths actually labeled as COVID is roughly half the actual excess deaths uh, recorded over the period. Now, why? Oh, my goodness. You know, you know I... I twitter and everyone's been awash with people arguing about why and broadly there are three explanations i think for some of those are uh, elderly frail people um, who have an extremely mild who do have co- are, have got the infection it's so mild they're not symptomatic but in a sense it pushes them over the edge and one of the reason one of the supporting evidence for that the people have cited is the fact that up to now over the winter we've had extremely mild weather there's been no big seasonal flu outbreak at all and and we have what, we're essentially 10,000 deaths in credit over the winter so far. These are frail, mainly elderly people who normally, we don't of course know who they are, this is just a statistical number, um, uh, who would normally have, have died in, a, in an average winter. So there, we have this terrible way to describe it as a, as a backlog of frail elderly people who might be particularly susceptible to even mild infection. And then there's the idea that um, there may be many cases, and I've talked to GPs about this, the difficulty of registering, putting COVID, suspected COVID on the death certificate, the difficult decision about that when you have, might not have even seen the patient. Now, under the new regulations, a death can be certified without having seen the patient recently, and um, the, the GPs then are, are, are Dependent upon some of the reports of the carer in the care homes, thing about what symptoms they might have had, and that will make any professional doctor rather um, reluctant unless they're fairly confident to put COVID-19 on the um, on the death certificate. So there's the reason that there, so maybe there are some more moderate cases with some symptoms that aren't being put on. Then, and that will make a certain proportion. We don't know how many. And then the really thing that people want to, are interested in is how many of these are cases who never had COVID, but who didn't go to hospital with their chest pain. You know, someone in a care home who might have had a minor stroke, and rather than taking them into hospital, partly because there may be a feeling that the hospitals are very high-risk places, and partly because they feel they don't want to burden the NHS with more patients, and so people aren't attending. And we know people aren't attending hospital. Hospitals, our local hospital, Cambridge, is, is actually... Not empty, but it's it's really not dealing with any of its normal customers uh, in the way that they used to. A huge drop in A and E attendances, in in and of course elective surgery being cancelled, chemotherapy has been cancelled, and so on. And so um, that is the crucial: how many cases, what proportion of these extra is that kind of sort of case? And this is very important because it, to say this could influence what people feel about releasing the lockdown and so on. People are going to be arguing about this for ages trying to work out what sort of analyses, what sort of data would help tell you to try to separate between those
1: things. Do you think that data exists?
5: Very difficult. And so, you know, people have got ideas, which we're already starting to look at. For example, if it's due to lockdown, that should be uniform across the whole country. Um, you know, because everyone's experiencing the same same impact. So that should be a uniform effect. Whereas if it's unregistered COVID deaths, that should tend to occur in hotspots of COVID, you know, in, in West Midlands and London and so on. Um I would at the moment we're only getting regional data very broad areas. If if we could have regional da- data in much finer areas, so you could look explicitly at areas in which there's, you know, there are some areas of the country with very little COVID indeed. And if they are having a rise in non-COVID deaths, then that would suggest it's due to the intervention rather than perhaps the disease. But it, it's extremely difficult to tease this out, um, partly because yeah. the COVID deaths, we, we know who those are. Those have got names. We can look at their comorbidities and so on. But the non-COVID deaths, um, we can't. We, you know, this excess of 2,500, because we don't know who those are. We've got to look at the whole 12,500 per week of non-COVID mm. And how do we do that? Do we sample them? Do we go back and look at some do we check the death certification? Is it this is a massive operation and we have to decide actually is it worth it? So um I think uh this is a, a real challenge. Um
1: Do you think that that spike will um reassure the the government um advisers in some way that they have got the measures right? Um that that this that we're starting to see that the virus is causing excess death. And and there was this concern that perhaps um, until we started to see something like that, was the lockdown worth it with all the harm that might come downstream?
5: No, I think this was predictable that we were going to get a big spike. And and in a way, we don't know about the whole pattern until until after it's all over, almost, when we look back on the whole year and we count up over the whole year and see, well, actually, what was the excess? Um, and I, I think what would be very unfortunate, and this is already people saying this is going to happen, is that when we get to the end of the year and there is not a massive excess deaths over the year, or perhaps like a, you know, a, a bad flu year, which is about 25,000 excess deaths, and um, people will say, oh, well, what was all the fuss about? Why, why do we have to lock this down? And um, I think the crucial thing is, it's the, it's this, um, the acuteness of the spike. In the flu year, you do get some but it spread over much of the season. The NHS is not overwhelmed, it can cope. The NHS is coping at the moment, which is uh, very impressive, an uh, absolute testament um, to the uh, people uh, involved. Um, uh, but it's the it's the it's the concentration of this of this impulse of of this surge of of um, disease. Now, once we know essentially, which I think we do know, that the NHS can cope, once that ac- really acute surge starts dropping, I think then there will be very genuine arguments that could be made for. Um, For I'm not involved in any policy decisions or advising even, but there could be to relax lockdown with the knowledge that this will not minimize COVID-related deaths. With the knowledge that this will, in a sense, have um, impact on overall mortality, that people will continue to get infections and die, but um, there will be a trade-off there against the harm being done to future generations. A long-term impact of this and talking to doctors just saying the staggering backlog of, of routine operations and hip replacements and even cancer surgery that's being delayed at the moment just this backlog that's building up there's gonna be a massive downstream impact of this not just the economic harm that's being done and I think that um, there would be genuine discussions that that actually minimizing this excess death is not necessarily the
2: objective that policy should have. Well, one of the most important aspects about deaf data is what we're really interested in is understanding when the peak occurs. And what you're looking for is some bits of data that are reported in the same way every day. So the most important data we found is that's useful is NHS England's reporting of hospital death data on the day that it occurred. Yeah. And if you look at that data, you'll see that it started to go up on about. We started to see an emergence around about the 21st of March. It started to go up and it was going up and up and up till about the first second of April. And it was going up in a, in a sort of trajectory of going like, oh, we're going into an exponential curve. And then it started to flatten. And it's flattened out at around about 700 to 750 deaths per day. The peak occurring around about the 8th of April with nearly 800 deaths on that day. Remembering that we keep having day deaths drift back as they get reported in. So once you've hit the peak and it flatlines, that tells you that your infection has done the same. And it did it about 21 days before. Now, you will get deaths ongoing at that rate for some time as people come through because they all won't die in 21 days. There'll be some seriously unwell people who will be left in hospital. There may be 27, 28 days. But you've got to... Focus in on the change in the data, not the absolute numbers.
1: So what you're saying is that, in effect, these different data sources that you could look at on death, the dates of when those deaths are occurring is important. And so what we're seeing in the ONS data this week, you've been seeing in some other data a little bit earlier in the daily hospital data.
2: Yeah, and we noticed that in the early days of the way the data was reported, there was huge disparities between NHS England's data and the ONS data. It was about 70 to 80% out. And you got reports saying, oh my gosh, death could be 70 80% more. When we've looked at it, actually, what's happened here is NHS England death data has got much better, is being reported more accurately, and actually, there's only about a 10% discrepancy. So we feel that actually there's not going to be as big a problem as what, what, what David said uh, and is this idea that you have to focus on the change because one of the key aspects is in the pandemic is you expect the deaths, like the infection, to double about every five to six days. And if they keep doubling, if they'd have kept doubling, we'd have been at about 2,000 deaths per day now plus... That's the doomsday scenario. So the deaths are very high, but actually reassuring in that they're not the pandemic prediction models that we've seen. They are more acting like what we call a seasonal effect with a really bad flu, that we're getting this peak, particularly in the elderly. Now, it's really important to understand this concept of the elderly. Because one of the most important aspects is if you compare in a pandemic, let's like take like swine flu. One of the most important aspects is the reason that was called a pandemic is that actually the deaths occurred in disproportionately in younger people, those under 75. That's what happens with a new novel virus when it is a pandemic. As opposed to a seasonal outbreak where most of the deaths occur in the very elderly or those over age 75. And one of the reassuring points, and I know this doesn't explain, every death is important, but what David's point was about the 10,000 people is, what's reassuring in this pandemic is, the deaths in those young people are very, very small, particularly in children, whereas in influenza outbreaks and pandemics in the past, they've been affected very badly.
0: Mm. So I've got a question about what this means for our understanding of things like case fatality rates. Um, Does this mean that the different data sources will come up with different things for that? Or, or, you know, what do we we understand there?
2: So uh, we get asked a lot about case fatality rates. There's 30-fold variation in countries' case fatality rates. And that's basically the measure of the number of deaths of of those with detected disease and we basically say that measure is pretty useless on the basis it's a function of testing and who you test and that, and as you test more people your case fatality rate will go down if you test just severe people selection bias it will go up And all of these features have happened. In fact, in Italy, it doubled in a week, the case fatality rate. So we basically are saying that's not a helpful measure. What would have been really helpful is to fix on some measures. So, for instance, you can have symptomatic hospital fatality rate. That's very helpful. And every country could have reported that in the same way. So if you get admitted to hospital with symptoms, what's the fatality rate? And then you could have compared country to country. But as it stands, case fatality rates are a waste of time. And we look at them and they do what they always do in this situation is they continue to trend down and down and down. And they'll get nearer and nearer to the truth. But with some way off that yet.
1: Is this difficulty with the case fatality rate? Is this a a COVID specific problem or does this crop up in any pandemic or with, with any infection? I mean, could it be something that's sort of fixed to say we need to almost redefine or be more specific about what we mean about case fatality in order for it to actually be useful to decision makers or clinicians?
2: I think we continue to make the same mistakes again and again. So let's go back to the swine flu pandemic. It started in Mexico with a case fatality rate, as I remember, at about 10%. Everybody panicked. It dropped and dropped. The lowest bound of the estimate by the end of the outbreak was 1%. And then it dropped again to 0.01%. And then eventually, I think it was Liam Donaldson at the time, did a report and said actually the fatality rate was 0.02% when he actually looked in the light of day. It is very hard in the midst of a pandemic to understand what's going on. But there are what makes this virus particularly sneaky and difficult to understand is two things there seems to be a lot of people with mild disease or asymptomatics. And the reports say somewhere between 5 and 80%. You know, how's that for, for a precise estimate? But that's what they're saying. That's over 20 reports now say, here's a proportion of asymptomatics. So they won't be tested. They won't present for uh actual with symptoms. And so they won't be counted in, in the case fatality rate. So we've discussed this before, trying to Uh, estimate what's called the infection fatality rate. What's the rate of death in all those with the infection? Now, it's interestingly, in Germany, they've just done this. And the only way to do this is through antibody testing. And here's another error we're making. It seems like we're saying we can't do the antibody testing until we've got 3 million highly accurate tests. But you could do some random samples in populations, like Brighton, where it started, I've had emails from people in Brighton telling me all the time that there's more people with the disease than was first thought in schools, all sorts of areas. You could do a random sample of those people, a thousand. You get an estimate very quickly of how many people you think actually had the disease. In Germany, in one town where they thought they had 2% of cases, when they did that random sampling, their estimate went up to 15% of people had the disease, which dramatically lowered the infection fatality rate to about
1: 0.3%. And it's interesting you should say that because there was that interesting correspondence in the New England Journal this week on universal screening for SARS-CoV-2 in women admitted for delivery. And that similarly is it, obviously a slightly more specific population, but they, they RNA tested all of those women presenting for delivery and found asymptomatic infection in about 13 to 14 percent of people and symptomatic infection in about two percent of people which again suggests that that quite a few quite a few people out there are having the infection
2: yeah and i and i've had people say well they're in hospital surely the more at risk but i'm like hold on a minute pregnant women are those who are on the at risk register so should be more likely to be isolating so and remembering the antibodies in the german study take quite a bit of time to come through So there could have been some of the women who might have already had the disease, so they're not testing positive at the time as well. So uh, there is a possibility here that in particularly in densely populated areas, the proportion of infection is way up higher than what people have thought. And if you look at the cabinet now in government, 20% of the cabinet have had this disease. It is not... uh, implausible to suggest 20 to 30 percent of people in densely populated areas and cities may have had this infection in areas that are not densely populated it could be virtually zero And, and and if you look at somewhere like america that's a good example of what's going on if you go to new york chicago san francisco it's having a huge impact you go into the midwest in the states in the middle they're like what's going on there's hardly anything happening here
0: Maybe it's time we go back to uh, the people we talked to in Iceland to see how their population testing is gone and if there is actually any results from that yet.
1: After our discussion um, earlier, Carl, I think the other interesting thing uh, to speak to David's point about how do we drill down and understand these excess deaths further was knowing that the ONS um, have some additional data, both on the ages of people who are dying and also on the causes um, of death in those people. What have you found?
2: So that's really important. You can look at respiratory deaths and they include viral pneumonia, which people have considered to be one of the end stage effects in SARS. But actually, they've not gone up by much. They've only gone up by about 500 in the week. You'd expect a much higher... a trend upwards in them deaths. The second issue is uh, we've seen that I the data suggests there's underreporting of COVID, particularly in the very elderly over 85, but not underreporting in younger age groups under 75, right down to 45 year olds. It looks like there's some real effect there that there's something else going on. Now, importantly, the head of the ONS said because of the importance of this issue. Next week, they're going to try and drill down more on the ICD code data. They only produce the respiratory conditions now, but they're going to start to put out more like the cardiovascular issues next week so we can understand what's going on. So that comes out on Tuesday of each week. There may be a bit of a blip again, though, because we've had Easter weekend, the Friday and the Monday. And there may have been a bit of a blip in terms of registering deaths in that period. So we may see some oddities in the data again that we can't quite explain.
0: So there we go. A huge amount of uncertainty still, even though we've got some new data on mortality. That's it for this episode. Uh, We will be back next week with more. Um, We are looking at uh, guidelines and the ethics of that, which Helen's particularly interested in. And we're going to pick up on waste in research that we touched on today. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss out on that. All of the BMJ's stuff on COVID-19 is free to access at the moment. Go to bmj.com slash coronavirus, where you can find all of that. So uh, until next week, it's goodbye from me.
1: Goodbye from me.
2: And goodbye from me.
1: Take care.